Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. For late and behind the scenes coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Michael Osborne, president at Wonderkin. They recently released their Black Friday and Cyber Monday performance marketing report. We'll talk about that as well as a larger, more holistic retail marketing report. We'll talk a little bit about the retail marketing landscape, what companies are doing correctly, what companies should be doing to get it right, and where companies are missing, particularly as it pertains to email messaging or other forms of digital communication. In news, we'll talk about Bed Bath & Beyond, and coming up in our Looking Ahead segment, we'll talk about a recent Deloitte report that suggests maybe a continued transition in how people purchase produce at the grocery store. A quick reminder that you can like us or rate us however you access us, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, what have you. Those ratings certainly do help others find our show, again, if you enjoy it. And also you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. So let's dive right into Bed Bath & Beyond's numbers. This is for their second quarter. They released these numbers Thursday of last week. And really, despite some media positivity surrounding the company, partially because of kind of a CEO and Mark Tritton that's new, hard to believe he's been there around two years already, but kind of seen as a little bit of a rock star in the retail leadership space. I think this kind of took some media members aback, particularly because we don't see retail earnings misses a ton of late. Most retailers have been beating on earnings. And also, he had appearances on major media outlets as recently as mid-August talking about their back-to-school season, how well they were able to gear up for back-to-school or really what is for them back-to-college. And so this kind of came out of left field. And it appears as though what's happening is These many factors that are causing maybe slight difficulties for other retailers have caused major ones for Bed Bath & Beyond when added to internal issues. So this has impacted their sales and their bottom line in a way that these other factors are providing only a minor hindrance for certain other retailers, talking about supply chain, talking about inflation here. And again, it also could be when you look at the macro level, a result of their specialty retail sector with both of their brands, both Bed Bath and Beyond and Bye Bye Baby. But either way, as a whole, the earnings call was a step back for a company that appeared to be making strides forward. Mark Tritton underscored on the call that this is really kind of a 12-quarter transformation plan, and they're only a little over a third of the way through that. Now, the headline of their press release, as headlines do, underscored the positive, which is that there was positive cash flow in the quarter. Although this was true, earnings per share were expected by Zach's consensus estimates to come in at $0.53 per share. They instead arrived at just $0.04 per share on an adjusted basis. And as we break down the numbers, we're also, by the way, appreciative that the new iteration of leadership does break out sales numbers by brand. That's been something historically that we never really saw from Bed Bath & Beyond, so it, they didn't break it down back when World Market was part of their portfolio. Bye Bye Baby, Bed Bath & Beyond, we never knew exactly how each brand was performing. But overall, comparable sales for the company were at negative 1%, so a decline of 1%. This includes both in-store and online sales. 
However, this was driven mostly by e-commerce sales taking a step back somewhat. When you look at brick-and-mortar comps company-wide, those were actually up 3% for the quarter. When you look at Bye Bye Baby individually, those comps were actually up in the high teens. Digital sales slumping, that did hurt the company, and that's something we've talked about a lot where you're seeing digital sales in general either go flat or decline in terms of growth for companies across the retail landscape. Bed Bath & Beyond's digital penetration was up to a whopping 34% of overall sales, so even a slight increase does hit their top line pretty hard. And by the way, this penetration, that's nearly double where the number was at when Triton took the reins in 2019. Now, we've seen a decrease in their use of brick and mortar as well to fulfill versus other retailers. Just around 35% of their fulfillment coming from stores. Only 15% of retail orders fulfilled by buy online pick up in store. You're seeing other retailers come in, depending on the category, really about 40 to 70% buy online pick up in store fulfillment in certain circumstances. And certainly higher numbers of fulfillment from stores, but we know given the target background, we can guess that he'd like to steer the company more towards that store-based fulfillment if possible, because that's something, again, Target is well known for. Now, reasons for the falloff in sales were various based on comments that Triton made on the call itself, not necessarily in the press release, but on the call. Basically, the sales cadence of the quarter began strong, but then petered off. So really, if you wanted to blame a particular month, you can blame August, because this is when sales really declined significantly year over year. In fact, if you look at comps before August 1st, so the second quarter running up to August 1st, they were actually up year over year by 24%. So that shows a couple of things. One is it shows both the typical strength of August as it pertains to their sales. Again, back to school, back to college, a big category for Bed Bath & Beyond. But overall, it's a big season as people gearing up for fall and winter. The second thing it shows is just how awful their August was to completely turn comps that were up 24% all the way to a negative 1% for the quarter. Now, they were one of the handful of retailers who blamed the Delta strain of COVID for keeping people away from stores. They noted this was the case, especially in key states like Florida, Texas, and California. Those three make up over 30% of their sales, and traffic was down at those particular stores, particularly during August. In addition, the noted inflation that we talk about, that was steeper as the quarter went on, something that's not unexpected, and it hasn't affected sales yet for Bed Bath & Beyond, but it did certainly affect that bottom line. Of course, supply chain was noted as well. Lead times outstripped their worst case plans, meaning they were chasing things a bit during the quarter. They hope overall to recover by November for a strong holiday season, but as we've talked about before, it's likely holiday sales see a bump in October again this year. So that might drive more share away if they can't get the problems fixed before November, which was kind of the target date on the call. Also, this is something that hadn't been mentioned to this point by Tritton on those media appearances when he's talking about the back-to-college season. Seemed like they had stocked up pretty well there, so maybe the supply chain issues, not specific to that. But I think the most interesting thing that Tritton mentioned on the call as far as why they fell short this quarter was, and I quote, internal execution issues. Specifically, he discussed missed opportunities in marketing 
to attempt to kind of support or buffer up that traffic a little bit for both online and in-store. Basically, what it came down to was negative effects from their discontinuing a good number of their mailed coupons, maybe more than what they should have, opted instead during the quarter to double down on online and social media advertising. And Tritton said up front, hey, this was absolutely an overcorrection on our part. This was disproportionate to how each medium drives traffic here, and we've got to correct that in the future. This basically suggests that those circulars, the 20% off a single item circulars and the like that Bed Bath & Beyond is so notable for sending out, still work. Those things still drive traffic, but also it suggests that perhaps conversion on their social media and digital marketing wasn't as high as could have been expected. Maybe those customers aren't spending as much money as could be expected versus those that bring those circulars in. And this was a looking ahead segment we had quite some time ago. This is something that we knew was happening. This is something that they mentioned they wanted to do. And credit to management here for owning up and saying, hey, we probably went too far the other way. But we know from looking at retail experience, same thing happened at Bath & Body Works. Same thing happened at Victoria's Secret at L Brands. They started discontinuing some of the coupons that they were sending out and suddenly sales dropped off. And they said, wait, we overcorrected. We're going to start sending those things out again. We're going to start sending catalogs out again and the like. And that bolstered sales, well, at least for one of those brands. So we've seen this before. And although you credit management certainly for owning up to this, certainly there was a cautionary tale in the specialty retail sector against doing exactly what they did, yet they still overcorrected, costing them sales during the quarter, particularly in August. I do, again, want to give them credit because for most things on the call, they assigned internal blame. They said, hey, we knew supply chain was going to be an issue. We knew inflation was going to be an issue. We should have planned even more than what we did to mitigate those impacts. And certainly appreciative of that because how many times do we talk about retailers here saying ah well it was weather or it's inflation or supply chain and those are things that are out of our hands in this case bed bath and beyond and the leadership that was on this call really spotted out ways to say hey no this was our mistake we know how we're going to fix it going forward and this is part of the learning process in this larger turnaround strategy because again this is a company that looking back to 2019, was in a lot of trouble financially, both in terms of the direction of the company. They appeared to be somewhat rudderless, if you will. Now, despite all this negativity that we've talked about surrounding both their sales numbers and some of their internal initiatives that might have eroded sales, there were some positives outlined by management on the call. More positives than what we'll get to here, but I did want to touch on the main ones. For one, they've completed 70 remodels of Bed Bath & Beyond stores year-to-date, updating the stores with a bit of a more open look, which is to say if you've been to one of the stores that's been revamped, merchandise isn't piled to the ceiling like it is in the typical store format. It's a little bit more open, a little bit brighter. They've redone the lighting in most of them. Additionally, they've launched six different private labels across their different product categories to attempt to drive margins. And that's something that Triton has historically been bullish on, again, dating back to his target days. They hope to launch eight brands in total by fiscal year's end. This, I think, of all the changes, and I know Leighton feels the same way, has the best potential to provide an immediate boost 
to the top line over the next few years. And finally, they announced they're moving to the next phase of their strategic partnership with Ryder to improve supply chain and iron out wrinkles or potential wrinkles on the logistics front. But let's go back and talk about bye-bye babies increase. Again, high teens in terms of year-over-year sales increases. This was driven largely by increasing market share. And perhaps this is the best news that was given on the call. This is a good sign. We've noted before that these types of businesses, whether they be the now defunct Babies R Us, whether they be other boutique retailers that really focus on younger children, they'll see changes based on birth rates, of course. But it's also promising that the gains came this quarter largely from taking that overall market share from competitors, especially since they're lapping a quarter where sales in the category were kind of tepid for many, especially specific categories like apparel and travel gear, both of which up big time year over year for Bye Bye Baby. The travel gear, of course, something not likely to drive sales a year ago during that second quarter. You think about the summer a year ago, not many people getting out and traveling quite yet. So it makes sense that sales there were up. But despite the success of this banner, not much was said about it on the call itself, nor were questions forthcoming from the analysts. Most of the analysts were really just interested in the Bed Bath & Beyond brand. And I think, while that's certainly understandable because it is the name of the company overall, I think what we've seen at Buy My Baby is encouraging. And I think it's going to also help kind of drive both the top line and bottom line numbers going forward if they can keep this momentum up in the baby categories. Well, coming up after this break, once again, we'll be joined by Michael Osborne, president at Wonderkind. We'll talk about their recently released Black Friday and Cyber Monday performance marketing report. It goes back and gives a historical view as to how conversions have historically been driven during the holiday shopping season and what we can expect in terms of retail communication to customers during the 2021 holiday season. Over the past few weeks, we've discussed projections and data surrounding the 2021 holiday sales season, and we've discussed how these projections may affect transportation and logistics as well as it pertains to retail. So this week, we thought it pertinent to once again discuss trends regarding shopping in the U.S. as we approach the holiday season, this time with a bit of a focus on conversion and how retailers are reaching customers, as well as how they're expected to reach customers and the most effective methods for reaching customers using recent history as a precedent. Now, here to discuss some of these topics and more is Michael Osborne, president at Wonderkind. Wonderkind recently released their Black Friday and Cyber Monday performance marketing report, as well as their national retailer marketing study findings. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trent. Very excited to be here. First, I was wondering if you could provide us just a little bit of a brief background so our listeners know kind of what Wonderkin does on the day-to-day and what you do on the day-to-day as well. Absolutely. So Wonderkin is a consumer engagement platform focused on performance marketing, driving personalized experiences to consumers on behalf of the brands that we work with across retail, hospitality, and financial services. My role at Wonderkind is president, essentially overseeing the commercial functions. Think sales, services, marketing, strategic alliances, all of those things that affect how we acquire customers and how we service them over the long term. 
in order to drive value for them and also for the consumers that they serve. My background and how I got here joined as part of the acquisition of Smarter HQ last year. We completed that acquisition in 2020, November. I had been CEO of Smarter HQ for about six years prior to that. But earlier in my career, I ran client services for a company called Core Metrics, a web analytics firm serving mostly retail, and then was head of sales for basically the lifespan of the business from inception through the IPO in 2012 of Bizarre Voice. You know, essentially I've served retailers and B2C marketers my entire career. I've done so with a couple of different firms as mentioned. So I have a grounded understanding of what it's like to be in the customer services side of things, but also in the sales front end and then running a business. Now part of Wonderkind as president, basically focusing on those commercial functions. I've basically lived retail my entire career. So very excited to be here and speak with you. Absolutely. So let's go ahead, jump into these numbers. And I wanted to start kind of with Wonderkin's overarching study of consumer perception of effectiveness as far as retail marketing is concerned. As we take a little bit of a zoom out at the numbers that were generated, I believe it was 2,000 participants in this particular study. How did you find customers prefer that retailers interacted with them? And what forms of marketing communication here in 2021 appear to be the most effective? Yeah, so the survey data told us that email and text messaging are still the most preferred methods of communication from a brand to the consumer. There are others listed that consumers enjoy as well, like in-app communications, pop-up notifications, but they're far and away down the stack from those top two preferences. You know, as far as it comes to the ads that a consumer may see, they, they really don't like seeing ads that are irrelevant to them. They don't like seeing things that are for instance, an ad that they've already purchased the product of, and it follows them around for the next couple of weeks. Essentially, consumers continue to say the same thing. They, they want to have personalized messages. They want to have an interaction, an engagement, a, a conversation with a brand, but they want that conversation to be valuable and relevant, timely. They don't want it to be irrelevant, mass marketed to. They don't want to feel ignored. And the study didn't say anything that I would find to be completely new. It just continues to tilt more and more towards the mobile experience, more and more towards text and email, more and more towards personalized experiences. And all of that makes complete sense to me. We've seen those trends evolve over time with the advent of technology, similar to Wonderkind, that allows a brand to communicate in a personalized fashion through the right channel at the right time. Consumers are just continuing to remind us that's exactly what they want. And beyond that, as you mentioned, consumers don't want something that's either not targeted to them, irrelevant, or an advertisement for a product they may have already purchased. And as someone that's involved in this field on a day-to-day -day basis, why is there still this disconnect here between retailers and consumers as far as I think it's happened to all of us. We get ads for two or three weeks after purchasing a product for that very same product that we purchased. Where's the disconnect happening there? Yeah, Trent, honestly, I think it's because it's still too easy to fall into those traps as a marketer. You know, put yourself in that marketer's shoes. It's end of a week and they are behind on their sales target for that week, that day, that month they immediately go to what is the easiest thing they can do. I'm going to send one message to my entire list with one new product promotion. I don't care if the visitors that are seeing this promotion actually want this product. I don't care if they've bought it. I don't care if they've ever looked at it or if they've even been back to my site anytime recently. I'm just going to send it. It will generate return. You will get revenue from that send. 
However, the thing that retailers need to remember, they're damaging the long-term relationship with those consumers who don't find it relevant, who don't want that message, who have already bought the product. One of the worst things a retailer can do is send a promotional email to me about a product that I bought a week ago offering 25% off. I get very frustrated with that because I've just bought it at full price. Now, of course, some consumers might try and call them up and get the deal anyway, but most are just going to be annoyed and no longer engage with that brand in the same way. When marketers use technology to personalize those messages, focus on those that will actually benefit from that communication, it's very valuable. And it does the exact opposite. It focuses that person back to the brand in a way of believing that that brand is listening to them. They understand them. They know what they want and they know that this is a valuable message. So it's valuable to receive it. I think the reason that there's still a disconnect is because it's still easy to do it. However, it's not as easy to understand the long-term downstream impact, the customer lifetime value that you're eroding by doing that. And because of that, marketers may win today, but lose over time. And if they do that for too long, those brands are the ones that are on the downward side of the trends and are not successful over time. Those are the brands that we see going out of business or simply falling behind in competition with other up and coming brands that are focused on being so digitally relevant and so personalized in their communication. So we've talked specifically about ad outreach or marketing communication insofar as either irrelevant messages or maybe about a product someone's already purchased. I think there was a lot of data in this survey kind of surrounding why certain ads, certain forms of communication don't work. What were some of the most prevalent reasons outside of maybe irrelevancy customers gave for maybe not following through on marketing communication, whether it's via email or SMS or any other platform? Well, the statistics were very interesting about what you just mentioned, because only 23% of the consumers believe that brands understand their individual needs and preferences. And almost two thirds believe that the communications simply don't have a personal touch. Almost a third felt bombarded by irrelevant messaging from brands. Those trends alone, like just those statistics tell you that consumers in general simply don't believe that a brand is actually paying attention. So when they do, it stands out they're much more likely to open emails and text messages from brands that they do feel connected to, almost 50% more likelihood. They're influenced by the consumer-generated content like reviews and ratings at almost two-thirds of them saying that this is something that they will take into account. The inclusion of other content like that, the inclusion of personalized messaging, the inclusion of even simply conversational messaging, whether it's trying to sell a product directly in that communication or not, simply connecting with the consumer in a way that they find valuable will tilt their mentality back towards believing that you as a brand are paying attention to them, which makes it far more likely for them to pay attention to the next thing that you send them. I think also taking into account trends like, do consumers want to open an email and look through that, or do they want to engage via text message? The data is there. Consumers absolutely vote with their clicks. They understand that if they really want to open a text message and they do so, that they know the brand should pay attention to that. And the brands that do follow up via text message, they convert that customer down a different path and use that channel as the next communication. It's more likely to get the next open. All of that reinforces that loyalty because the consumer is feeling that they're listening to me. They've paid attention. They understand my behavior. It's not explicit. It's subconscious. But for the brands that ignore it and continue to bombard with messages in the wrong channel, in the wrong way, that are not personalized, 
continue to tilt those consumers away from the brand. So then we've talked a little bit about the overarching survey, about the data, not only quantitatively, but also qualitatively. I did want to turn our attention to that Black Friday and Cyber Monday performance marketing report that was recently released. I was wondering if you could give us some background as far as this report is concerned. I believe this is the third annual report coming out. Just kind of how the data was collected and the purpose behind Wonderkind publishing this data. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a very similar component to the survey. We looked at how these brands have performed over Black Friday, Cyber Monday over the last three years. And we've taken in both industry trends and data that we found elsewhere, but also done our own analytics on things like the busiest shopping times over the last few years, the year over year changes as far as overall productivity of that time frame. You know, I've personally been in this market doing this over Black Friday, Cyber Monday for 20 plus years. And it has evolved massively, even in just the last five, as to how consumers want to engage during this time period, what starts the clock on a Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale, how the advent of the doorbuster and now the conversion of that to the online sales and the online promotions has really changed how consumers interact, as well as how they're interacting digitally, specifically desktop tilting all the way to mobile device. Amazing how in very short order, we have moved from most of our shopping being done on a laptop, on a desktop, now to being done on your phone, maybe on your tablet. That change has altered a lot of how retailers should communicate, the kinds of content, the way that content's displayed, how they can interact with the mobile website versus the desktop website, which messages are going to trigger a consumer to actually click through and then shop on their phone versus wait until later. There have been a number of different trends over the last few years, mostly driven by mobile. I also want to say that I think one of the more interesting trends, specifically last year, of course, accelerated by COVID, but I think we're going to see it again and again, less and less focus on a specific day or a specific time of a day as far as when those promotions will begin. I think a lot, of, especially on the direct-to-consumer brands that are more up-and-comers, they're trying to get ahead of what they're going to have to compete with when it comes to the likes of the very large online retailers that can dominate a lot of what gets sent out and what ads are displayed over the course of a traditional Black Friday, Cyber Monday time period. I think last year showed us a lot around shipping time windows. And this year, the supply chain issues that we're certainly going to see, I think all of those things are gonna drive different timeframes and a longer, more spread out Black Friday, Cyber Monday time period which, to be honest, I think is actually good for the consumer. Now, you discussed some of the differences already between kind of 2017 when this data starts or when the data window really starts, and now especially sales pushing from desktop increasingly to mobile. What were some of the other more notable changes when you look at the, the last five years from 2017 to today as far as the holiday shopping season is concerned? Well, I, I talked a little bit about some of those trends moving earlier and earlier in the window. We've seen that specifically last year. The Black Friday time period was earlier than it had been in the prior two years. In 2017, Thanksgiving Day was actually the busiest shopping time. Cyber Monday for 18 and 19, and then switched back to Black Friday in 2020. I think we're going to continue to see that get pulled up. The year-over-year -year traffic and the triggered sends of the emails sent during that time period has grown year-over-year. -year we're at a level where it's not growing as quickly as it was, but we're still talking plus 50%-ish year over year for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. As I mentioned, the trend on which platform and how you're viewing, but I think this year we're going to see a lot more done via the text channel. 
even in our business at Wonderkind, we've seen our clients grow leaps and bounds in the amount of text opt-ins that they're getting, as well as the response they're getting from text messages. I think we're still very early days on how marketers are really going to leverage that channel to drive the kind of benefit that email does. Obviously, it's a different content format. You're not able to send the same rich content that you can via an email, but MMS messages allow for very creative messages to get sent. The short format allows for it to be more instant response as well as conversational. All of those trends, I think, are going to drive strategies that marketers can deploy to both acquire a customer during that time, but also nurture or continue to convert a returning customer over that time. And to be frank, I personally don't believe marketers have figured that out yet. I think there are still a lot of ways to experiment and a lot of ways to grow the overall results that they can drive during this time period by leveraging both channels in a unified fashion. That does require those retailers are paying attention to the data and responding to those trends in real time. It's not something that they can simply look at quarter over quarter and adjust a strategy. This is day by day, week by week and understanding exactly how those consumers are going to respond to each of those messages and then using them together in unison to drive a much better overall message to that consumer. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you know, marketing communication is all well and good, but it is ultimately about driving that ever important conversion. And as you mentioned, the total number of email sends by retailers continues to jump by leaps and bounds. 50% increase year over year on Cyber Monday last year, nearly 100% on Cyber Monday two years ago. So consumers are seeing more and more emails. As we've talked about earlier, in some cases, they're feeling bombarded when the emails aren't targeted. What are some of the things the smarter retailers are doing to stand out in these ever more crowded inboxes? Yeah, it all comes down to personalization. It comes down to being able to understand the data that consumers are communicating subconsciously through all of their interactions with the site, what their intent is. Are they looking at these categories versus other categories? Are they shopping for themselves, possibly for someone else? Are they high likelihood to purchase soon or are they simply browsing for now? Understanding all of those trends in the underlying data that a retailer naturally has, but needs technology and expertise to then take a look at and draw those insights from, allow amazing brands like Uniqlo, like Sonos, like HelloFresh to immediately drive more benefit to the consumer, which in turn turns into benefit to that retailer, to that brand. The increase in sends has a lot to do with the fact that more and more competition for the inbox exists today. Also, more and more series of messages that don't necessarily only focus on a conversion. They may focus on reminders. They may focus on other content that bring that consumer into the brand more holistically. They may be alerting a consumer to a price drop or to a back in stock, which of course is meant to drive a conversion, but is also giving a valuable experience to that consumer. I get frustrated when something's out of stock in my size. And when I sign up for the back in stock notification, or I've opted in for marketing messaging from that brand, I love it when they send me the message that says, hey, that shirt's back in, in your size. I immediately click through and buy it. That's actually a positive message from that brand because they're helping me acquire the thing that I wanted to get that I couldn't before. The shift towards mobile also makes it easier to react in real time. When I get a text message from a brand saying that item is now price dropped, you were looking at it two weeks ago, I'll click through and buy it right there while I'm walking into the restaurant to meet my friends. Because I know that I want it, this is a great deal. They can catch me in that moment and actually drive a conversion instantly. 
I think the tilt and those trends allow brands to accommodate the obvious needs of the consumer in a way that not only drives those conversions, but also makes that individual consumer feel this brand is paying attention to me and they love that. Some great pointers there, I feel like. I did want to talk about, based on your data in this report, a little bit about Black Friday, because as you discussed, as we've discussed before on the show, obviously the holiday season going to be spread out a little more this year, in part due to necessity, in part due to supply chain issues, logistics issues, and the like. But I think it's interesting, from 2016 to 2020, there was this shift in that more conversions or a greater percentage of conversions were really driven during Black Friday than they were during Cyber Monday in 2020 versus 2016. You know, it seems like five, six, seven years ago, we were hearing about the death of Black Friday. Why has maybe the conversion landscape tilted a little bit more towards Black Friday, even for e-commerce brands? Yeah, I think this has to do with how brands are now marketing to consumers via both the in-store and online channels in a more holistic fashion. I've worked with CMOs for my entire career, and it used to be very clear there were two internal silos. You had the stores and you had the website. Your VP of e-commerce and your VP of stores would fight for who was going to get the most promotional dollars, and whoever won might drive the better result that year. In this time today, in the last few years, but certainly in 2021, brands do not look at things that way anymore. And the ones that do are the ones that are declining. They see it as I have multiple channels to address the need of my customer. I have buy online, pick up in store. I can give credit to both parts of my business. In fact, I just need to take credit as a business for that sale. They can influence the journey and drive a consumer from the website browsing for especially apparel or things that often need an in-person touch before someone wants to purchase it. They can encourage those consumers to go to the store, make that purchase, as opposed to really push hard to convert them online simply to make their scoreboards internally look the way they need them to. When brands stopped thinking about the consumer as an either or online, offline, and started thinking about it holistically as the experience that consumer gets from me as a brand, that shift allowed for all of those promotions to start earlier, all of those promotions to cross channels, all of those promotions to be spread out over the time period of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, which I think is what you're seeing in this data. More and more brands are opening up and previewing even their promotions for the holiday period earlier so that consumers can make the decision of reserving some of their budget for that purchase. So they know that they're going to be able to get a deal on something that they are really looking for. I think the fact that brands have figured out, many have, not all, I will say that, figured out that the consumer should be able to do as they please and the brand should be able to service them where they need it is driving some of these shifts and trends. I do want to kind of go off the map here a moment because you mentioned not only in in that answer, but one of your discussions previously in this chat about how sometimes meeting goals, sometimes the goals that are set, sometimes the roadmaps that are set by retailers can have a bit of an erosive effect, if you will, regarding marketing communication, regarding maybe prioritizing the sale now, but losing out on that customer lifetime value. What are some of the things that you see in the retail landscape about maybe retailers moving the goalposts a little bit such that the view is a little bit more longitudinal rather than, hey, let's meet this goal this week. Who cares about what happens next week or three weeks later? Yeah, I think this comes down to how organizations are structured, 
how leaders run their teams, literally down to the mentality of the CMO and the marketing leadership suite at a brand. When they, those individuals have set it up such that the goals are oriented towards overall outcomes, long-term outcomes, recurring purchases, lifetime value of the consumer. When those marketing leaders have established clear guidelines for what the success criteria needs to be now, but also in the distant future, it allows for those teams to, down to a very literal level, be bonused on the right behavior. When you split those budgets, when you make them competitive internally, when you show statistics that say this channel performs better, we're going to put more into it, as opposed to understanding how the results cross those channels and how they influence each other. When you do it in a way that is siloed, immediately the organization shifts to, of course, focusing on whatever is going to drive individual benefit for the leaders and the team members that are driving those specific outcomes. I've seen this for my entire career and have had multiple conversations with CMOs over the course of my time working with them around literally how to structure a team and set targets and goals internally to allow for that collaboration and the work across channels, as opposed to feeling like one must lose for the other to win. Having a non-zero-sum game view of how we can drive benefit for a brand's growth over time allows for those leaders to work together to both accomplish those goals, as opposed to fight each other for it. I think it comes down to the mentality of the senior most marketing leader and the way that that brand wants to address their consumer. You see it mostly with the larger and kind of more old school big box retailers that have a very productive online channel, but they are more set in their ways of how they see things as one versus the other. The more nascent up and coming direct to consumer brands, especially, that are now opening stores and have those cross-channel benefits for consumers to go in and look at the products, they're focused on just simply driving sales across both channels. So they don't care if the stores are as performant because they know that it's influencing the online purchasing behavior. All of those factors, I think, is what's driving some of that change. And also, it's very easy to spot the brands that have figured it out because they're the ones that are growing 100% year over year. They're not the ones that are declining. Some great overall insight there. And as we wrap it up, final question. We enter into Q4 for most retailers out there. As you look across the marketing communication landscape as it pertains to retail, what is something that maybe you're keeping an eye on most or something that intrigues you most about the next three months? Well, the next three months, and actually I think this will continue into next year and beyond, The conversation that I've been having most with CMOs lately has been around how they are focusing more and more of their growth, their dollars, their investment on the owned channels that they control, namely their email list, their text opt-ins, the website itself, as opposed to what I call rented channels like Google or Facebook, where prices are continuing to grow. The user base growth has mostly flatlined. And CMOs know that they're going to get less for the same spend or have to spend a lot more to get more from those channels. It doesn't mean they're not going to use them. They're going to, of course, it's table stakes. But they are focusing more and more of their resources, both their dollars to spend and also the team's time internally on strategies that focus on leveraging those owned channels to deliver a better experience for their consumers year over year. That was a trend we saw significant shift in this year. I think that will be reflected in how those brands focus on the consumers on those channels this quarter in Q4 of 2021. I do think that that trend will continue to accelerate into next year. 
We thank you for joining us, Michael Osborne, president at Wonderkind, available, by the way, at wonderkind.co. Thank you so much for taking the time for the podcast today. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Trent. Thank you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Michael for joining us on the show. Now, in our Looking Ahead segment, as we'll wrap this up, a study came out from Deloitte this week that was highlighted in Supermarket News. And it talked a little bit about the dynamic between fresh and frozen food. And I think this is interesting because we know fresh food sales certainly grew during the course of the pandemic. The study specifically cites over 10% growth in fresh food sales. But frozen food sales jumped 21% last year. And at least according to this data, we're seeing those sales jump even more. Now, this was not just a study regarding produce. It was about also frozen meat, frozen poultry, frozen seafood, and so forth. And it's interesting because in terms of the age breakdown, the younger consumers, or at least in this survey, this study, the 18 to 34-year-old group, was buying frozen more. And also, they were more likely to agree that frozen is just as good or better than fresh than the older generation, than the 55-plus age group of shoppers. In some cases, more than twice as likely to find that frozen is as good or better than fresh. So with frozen food sales going up, with fresh food being, by nature, perishable, meaning potential for higher shrink, which is something that We've at least heard a couple of different retailers mention this year versus last year when stuff was flying off the shelves. I think it's important to potentially look at how this could affect grocery stores or those that sell groceries in the future. With this traffic towards frozen foods, we've generally already seen growth in frozen food sections. If you look holistically over the last 20 years or so, does this mean potential future growth of these sections as well? If so, is there a way for grocers to make it more efficient? And we've seen a lot fewer of the open freezers, if you will, that you used to see in the likes of the meat section. You're seeing a lot more closed freezers. You're seeing companies get creative in terms of variable lighting on those freezer units. This is not an easy thing for a grocer to add. It's a little bit different than if, say, sales of dried beans had gone up, then they can just devote extra shelf space to dried beans. When you're talking about adding freezers to your store, that is a major undertaking. And just a month ago, we talked about rural grocers, independent grocers. How will they evolve also as customer tastes evolve to be more accepting of frozen food? I think all of this is going to be key to look ahead towards over the next maybe year to five years. I don't think this is going to be a next month thing. I don't think it's going to be a next two month thing, but I do think you're going to find a lot more brick and mortar grocers planning around the frozen food section, potentially expanding it, potentially shuffling things up. We've already seen more product variation, more brands kind of jump into the frozen food space. So we'll see if maybe retailers catch up with that because we've talked on the show before 
how difficult it is for some of these brands to break in because freezer shelf space is finite. And of course, regular shelf space is as well, but it's a lot tougher to add something to the freezer section than it is to add something to the shelf stable section of a grocery store. So I think very worthy to keep an eye on. And by the way, you can check out that full Deloitte study either on Deloitte's website regarding the future of fresh food sales under their retail distribution tab, or you can, of course, visit the Supermarket News website, which has a pretty good breakdown of those insights as well. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's show. Coming up next week, we'll be pleased to be joined by Jim Inglis. He is the author of Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. He'll join us to discuss not only that book, but also growth culture at Home Depot and the home improvement retail sector as a whole. He's got a lot of retail experience. This is a phenomenal book. Highly encourage it. Excited to have him on the show next week. Once again, for Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until then. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.